truth. Father, thank you for how it transforms our lives. Thank you for the gracious gift that it is. Father, thank you that you have called us to be people of your word. That you've called us together corporately to hear your word read and to hear your word taught. Father, we thank you in advance for the ways that you will conform us to the image of Christ through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, if you've not been with us, we're walking through the Psalms together, the second book of Psalms together. And so we have another song to the sons of Korah. And this one is a bit different from the other ones. This one's actually kind of unique in its structure. And so, you know, we have the, the informative information in our Bibles. It's small. Some of you, it's italicized, but it's, you know, almost like a superscript type thing right before our English verse one in the Hebrew text. It is verse one. And so it kind of gives us some instruction about the sort of song that this is. And so this is for the choir director. According to the Shoshanim, and we get into what that means in just a second, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a maskil, usually most people carry with it the idea of a contemplative or reflective psalm. And then it gives this nice little ditty here at the end. This is a song of love. It's a love song. And so there's a lot of debate among the Hebrew scholars about what that word, that instructional word, Shoshanim, should mean. Very loosely or very technically translated, it, it means lilies, maybe lotus blossom because it is kind of an eastern flower. But since this is a love song, I'm thinking that loosely translated, and most Hebrew scholars agree with me, it's supposed to be set to the tempo of like a Barry White song. So that's how you need to read this. Like you need to read this in that voice. Saxophones going in the background. It's a love song. Like, that's how it is. Whatever that does for you. All the young kids are going, Barry who? Right. I'm sorry. Your love songs today are terrible. I just want to throw that out there. They're not any good. Those of you who have a, a mild bit of age on you. Al Green. Rev, the Reverend Al Green. I'm not that talented. I can't do what he does. Or Barry White, however you want to do it. But it's a love song. So this is a marriage song. So the king is about to get married. And the choir director has a mascal for the sons of Korah, a love song, a song of love about this wedding that's about to take place between the king and his bride. And there's three distinct sections to this song. The first section of the song, this first part of the love song, talks to us about the glory of the king, how glorious the king is. That's the first eight verses in our English Bible. So it says here, the psalmist, whoever the choir director in this case is, the psalmist says that his, his heart overflows. There's this incredible longing, this heightened sense of emotion this desire within the psalmist to express the deep affection that he has first for the king who's about to be married. He loves his king and he's excited that the king is going to be married to this wonderful, beautiful bride. And he's moved deeply within himself at the event that's about to take place. And so he pins things down. Actually, I, I, I love here in verse one, 
My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm sorry. Your modern love songs don't come close. That's that's incredible. Like that's amazing. That's beautiful. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm going to sing this amazing love song and I'm going to start with this king that I love and then I'm going to move to his queen that I love and then I'm going to talk about the marriage that they're going to have and so kind of structuring it. So I want you to notice the qualities of the king as the psalmist begins singing this beautiful love song. He wants you to understand why he views this king as so glorious and so worthy of this song. He addresses his verses to the king, he says in verse one, and then he begins laying out what the king is like. First, in verse two, you are fairer than the sons of men. Now, there's two different ways that that can be meant. The surface way that that is meant and and the way that it's properly understood is that he is more attractive physically than all the other men in the world. Now. I know that seems weird that it's a guy writing this love song and the very first stanza of the love song where he's singing about the other guy, the king, is how attractive the king is. I know that that doesn't sit well with us in our culture, in our society, but it's not uncommon historically, cross-culturally and in other places for people to do that. It's just not uncommon. But there's a secondary meaning behind this notion of being fairer. It doesn't just carry with it the concept of physical beauty, but it also carries with it the the notion that this king is well pleasing in the way that others perceive him, not just because he's attractive, but because of his character. And if you've been around for a while, you know this to be true. It's easy to be drawn to someone who has what our culture would deem to be physical attractiveness. And it's just as easy to be repelled from them if you find out they have horrible character. And we also know that someone that the culture may or may not find physically attractive. When you find out that they have an amazing character... They have great qualities and they're trustworthy and they're compassionate and they're kind and they're gracious. Somehow, some way, suddenly they become much more attractive than what you thought that they were. Because built into the heart of man is a draw toward the quality of the person, not just the outward appearance of the person. And in this king's case, he has both. He's outwardly pleasing to look at, but he's inwardly pleasing because he's an amazing, compassionate, gracious, kind individual. And so the psalmist starts with this quality about the king. And then notice what he does next in the second part of verse two. He says that grace. In some of your translations, it will say is poured upon that that phrase there can also mean passes through. And I, I like that better. Grace comes from his lips. Grace, grace is poured through the king's lips. In other words, whenever this king speaks, his speech is gracious. That doesn't necessarily mean that it always 
feels nice. Having gracious speech doesn't always mean that it's fluffy speech. I've had plenty of people in my life share gracious speech with me that stung a little bit. Because they were pointing out to me in their compassion and their grace and their kindness and their love for me things about my life that needed to be corrected. But they were being gracious to me by doing so. And so it's the king's speech is full of grace. It's a wonderful attribute to have. And then notice here at the end of verse two that the king is blessed by God forever. All right. So now we're already starting to venture into a different sort of category. So is this just a regular earthly king like other earthly kings? Or is this something different? Because while I understand the idea of resurrection in the future and you having the benefit of the new covenant, understand the notion of resurrection in the future. There's some really strong arguments that this clear concept of this future resurrection, living with God forever, life after death may have been a little shaky in the old covenant mindset. And so if this king is going to be blessed by God forever, what's happening here then? Are, 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 is this psalmist teaching us in a type and a shadow the concept of resurrection? It's very possible. Or is this psalmist telling us something about the nature of this king? That he might not be like other people. That this king might not be a temporal king. That this king might not be a finite king. But that this king might be an infinite and eternal king. Because he's blessed by God forever. Which, by the way, puts in perspective, it's a very different kind of king if that's what's being said here. Because all the other kings, they didn't dwell forever. They didn't have an infinite life. They were finite and they were temporal and they passed into the grave and their kingdom moved to someone else. It's very intriguing what the psalmist is doing here. Then notice when we shift into verse three, the, the, the psalmist begins talking about the, the accolades of the king. The quality of his ability to wage war. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. That mighty one could also be translated as warrior. And do so in your splendor and in your majesty. This is a king who is prepared to fight just and righteous battles. And in your majesty, verse 4, ride on victoriously. This is a king who will have victory over his enemies. And what is it that he is being victorious for? What is it that he's being a warrior for? What is it that this king is fighting for? Notice what this king fights for. He fights for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. That's not normally what kings fight for. Like if you just know a little bit about history, and you know a little bit about Kingdoms and kings and rulers. And you know a little bit about the things that they fight for. It's very hard to find a ruler, a governor, a king, an emperor, a president, whoever. 
who has solely and completely fought for the cause of truth, righteousness, and meekness. There's usually a little selfishness built in there somewhere. Want to expand land, want to get access to oil, want to get some money, want to drive out some enemies who wronged us a long time ago. There's usually some version of human fault and flaw in the way kings make battle and wage war. Not this king. This king fights for the cause of truth, righteousness, and get this weird one. This is a weird one to fight for. Meekness. He fights so that other men and women can live humbly in peace with their neighbors. That's the notion of meekness. Being able to live in humility and peace with your neighbors. Like he's fighting the enemy so that those who are under his care don't have to fight the enemy. Wow. I I want to meet this guy. Sound like a cool dude. And then notice what the psalmist continues to say. He says, your arrows are sharp. And this is, this is aggressive. Your arrows are sharp. I, I've never heard a love song have a verse in it like this. Your arrows are sharp and people fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. Weird line for a love song. Weird line for a love song. But there's this great victory that this king has. And then notice the transition that the psalmist make. He goes, he goes back to this everlasting notion. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we're talking about the glory of this king. And then suddenly right in the middle of singing about the glory and splendor of this king that the psalmist loves. He transitions to a praise of the eternality of the kingship of God himself. It's kind of a weird shift. And then notice he says. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Scepter usually represents. The king himself. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So we have this incredibly odd play here. Where the psalmist has been talking about the glory of this king. And then he talks about the glory of God and God's kingdom. And then he talks about the glory of God's scepter, which is usually the king. And he tends to tie both of them together in their love of righteousness, their hatred of wickedness, and the anointing that God has placed on this king. Now, it's not the exact same word in Hebrew. But in your English Bible, where it says the word anointed... That is the verb form of the Hebrew noun that we get the word Messiah from. The anointed one. This anointed one, the one who's been anointed by God, who is the scepter of God, who is the representation of God's throne being an everlasting throne, who's already been declared to be a king blessed by God forever, who equally loves righteousness and hates wickedness and overthrows all of God's enemies for the sake of the peace of his people. This is the king that we sing praises to. Friends, if you don't see Jesus there, I'm so sorry for you. This is clearly a song about the glory of Jesus Christ. And then to make sure that we don't miss it. 
in verse 8, this king is clothed with glory. All of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of uh, this, this, this king is robed in glory. His, listen to this, listen to this. The king's clothing itself is a fragrant aroma of praise. And that's, that's beautiful. And then notice what happens with this king at the end of verse 8. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. They have delighted your heart. People are singing songs of praise to this king. That's what they're doing. They're singing songs of praise to this king. And no one is viewing it as idolatry. That's beautiful. So the psalmist starts this love song with the glory of the king. And then notice the shift that gets made. And I I just want you to just file away in your mind that this is a picture of Jesus and the incarnational reality of his kingship. That's what's going on in these first eight verses. So I want you to file that and hold it. And then there's a transition where the, the psalmist now begins singing about the glory of the bride. He starts singing about the glory of the one who's going to become the queen to the king. And then notice here. In verse nine, the king's daughters are among your noble ladies and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. The queen stands at the king's right hand dressed in gold. Not real sure how that works. Because it doesn't tell us that it was like, you know, gold flaking on a dress. Like she's dressed in gold, like actual gold. Okay. Sorry, the, 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 the rose parade dresses at the little museum, not made out of gold. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're made out of some pretty expensive stuff, but like she's dressed in gold. That's a metaphor, by the way. This is a picture of the splendor and beauty and value and worth of the queen. And what we find out later is that she didn't come that way. She didn't show up dressed that way. She was adorned by the king that way. He made her look that beautiful. So what is the queen like? This queen that has come to this glorious king. First, uh, I want you to see the instructions that are given. Verse 10, listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. How's the queen supposed to be? She is supposed to abandon what was her birthplace home. And what was her birthplace people? 
And she's supposed to align herself fully with the house of the king. Friends, that is in the Psalms metaphor, a type and shadow of conversion. Friends. In the kingdom of darkness, I had a father who was the devil. And my people were wretched sinners who rebelled against the glories of Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to come and be adorned in righteousness and beauty and splendor, and if I'm going to reflect the, the, the majesty of the king, then I must abandon my father and my people, and I must have a new house and a new name. And then... When that transition happens, the king will desire her beauty. She will be clothed in the glory of his kingdom. And notice what it says. Notice what it says. Because he is your Lord, you will bow down to him. So there's a... a, Two unique relationships occurring between the king and the queen. They are to be married. They are to be husband and wife. There's to be a beautiful intimacy there. But at the same time, he is still her king and she still worships him, which is the reality of those of us who have come into Christ in the church. There's an intimacy there for he is the husband and we are the bride. But there's also an honor there for he is the king and we are citizens of his kingdom. He clothes us with his majesty and he clothes us with his beauty and he allows us to seat uh, to be seated in heavenly places on thrones with Christ Jesus. And he crowns us with glory and he crowns us with life. But yet we still sing his praises as our Lord and as our God forever. And then a very weird metaphor that hits our ears the wrong kind of way in our culture, in our society. But it's just how it was in the ancient Middle East and Far East. Still talking about the bride, she's now referred to as, in verse 13, the king's daughter. Very weird way to talk about the person that you're getting married to. Very strange. Uh, the Sunday school class that I happen to be in this morning, there's language of marriage, brother and sister. Like, she's my sister, but I'm also her husband. You know, like, they talked about stuff weird back. I'm sorry, they just did. Okay. The metaphors that they would use to talk about these relationships, incredibly unique. But this is a a metaphor for the bride. And notice what it says about the bride. So king's daughter, the bride. What is she? She's all glorious within. Now, wait a minute. They were talking about how good she looked on the outside. We're wearing the gold. And in a second, it's going to talk about the interwoven garments with gold and this outward appearance. And he loves her beauty. But she is all glorious Within. She, like the king, has this inward character that magnifies her outward beauty. Because she has been transformed to reflect the king's daughter. The language is a reflect. What what are your children? They are images of you. She has now been made to reflect the glory of the king. The king is outwardly glorious. The king is inwardly glorious. The queen is now outwardly glorious. The queen is now inwardly glorious. 
It's a beautiful thing that's taking place here. And then notice what happens. All of her companions come with her to the king's palace and they do so in rejoicing and gladness. Now, what I want to do is just quickly, because we only have a few minutes left together. I want you to flip over to the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And I want you to see the Psalm 45 bride described in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 21. For those of you who may have a hard time finding it, it's just to the side of the glossary and the maps. Page 1195, if you're using preaching Bible. Verse 1 of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down as a heaven from God. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And not to get lost in it. All the sermons I preached in Revelation are online. If you want to go back and listen to all the, I think it was... 70 some odd hours worth of sermons. Have fun this Sunday afternoon. Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is a representation not of an actual physical city, but the people of God. The people of God are the bride of Christ. And so this is talking about the people. All right, so. She's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Book of Hebrews says that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among him. That's the the incarnational reality of the presence of God found in the person of Jesus. The glorious eternal king who's the scepter of the right hand of God that we just read about in Psalm 45. And he will wipe away... Every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any crying. There will no longer be any pain. The first things have passed away. She has left the house of her father and her people and she has come in to his house and has a new image. The old things have passed away. Things now are new. She is glorious on the outside and inside because she's been brought into the king's house and she is now the king's bride and she now reflects his glory. And he sits, he who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And I give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. Her companions come with her with praising and rejoicing. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. We'll see that in just a moment as we reach the end of the psalm. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, there Their part will be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came to me and said, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This is how we know it's talking about people and not bricks. The angel gave it very clear. Jesus doesn't marry a physical city. Jesus's bride is his people that he's redeemed. 
And notice the description of this people. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God. Having the glory, having the glory of God. It's exactly what we just read in Psalm 45. Her brilliance was like the like very costly stone. A stone of crystal clear jasper. Had great and high, uh, high wall. Twelve gates. And the gates were twelve angels. And on the names were written in them were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east. And three gates on the north. And three gates on the south. And three gates to the west. And you can run through all of this and see... The, the preciousness and the beauty of it. But I want you to hit verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold. How did the bride get presented to us in Psalm 45? What was she? She was standing there with gold. That was her description. She stands at the right hand of the king in gold. This is a beautiful picture of what's going on. And notice when you hit verse 22, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or its temple and the city, the people of God have no need for the sun or the moon. Why? For the glory of God has illumined his people and the lamp among those people is the lamb. And what do the nations do? What do those people who've come with the bride do? They walk by its light. What do the kings of the earth do? They bring their glory into it. And in daytime, for there is no night there, its gates are never closed and it will bring glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean is ever found in it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, the beautiful thing about the types and shadows in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus is that it doesn't just point us to Jesus. It also points us to the body of Christ. It points us to the bride of Christ. It points us to not just to the shepherd, but also to his sheep. You find the glory of Jesus and where you find the glory of Jesus, you find the glory of the people that he will redeem. And so we have this beautiful picture of this queen Who's been made glorious because she abandoned her father and her people. And she came and took on the glory of the king that she now marries. Who is her husband and her Lord. And so in verses 16 and 17, back to Psalm 45 in verses 16 to 17, the psalmist now turns his attention not to the glory of the king and not to the glory of the queen, but to the glory of their marriage in all of the earth. Because friends, it's not any good. To write a love song and talk about how great the husband is. Talk about how great the bride is. And not to talk about how great their love actually is. Not really a love song. If you leave that part out, it's not actually a love song. It's just a song about how great you think the husband is and how great you think the wife is. And then you just leave it alone. No, the psalmist takes two stanzas here. To talk about the glory of the marriage in all of the earth. Notice what it says. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all of the earth. There's a, a unique thing that's happening here. The growth 
of the royal family through the union of the king and the queen will bless the earth. This is inheritance language. The children that come from this union of the husband with the bride, of Christ with his people, the children that come from this union will be a blessing in all of the earth. They will be royalty in all of the earth. And friends, the New Testament is covered over with that kind of language. John writing to various churches. I counted a blessing that my children are walking in the Lord. The Apostle Paul talking about Timothy as a child in the faith. On and on throughout the New Testament, the language of conversion that happens because Christ is drawing his people to himself. And we have multi-generational realities of the kingdom of God being expanded through the work of the gospel and the abiding presence of the church that is now the incarnational reality of Jesus Christ while he is ascended, making intercession for us, waiting for the final culmination of the kingdom at his return and the future resurrection. We are expanding the light and the glory of the majesty of Jesus All over the world, one converted person at a time through the gospel that the church shines out in the world. There's a glory of this marriage union that blesses the whole earth. And then I want you to notice what it says in verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks until the day you die and we get a new king. No. Forever and ever. Friends, this union between this king and this queen is an everlasting union. And for all of eternity, the union between this king and this queen will cause people to praise the name of the God who brought this union about. It's fantastic. And friends, I don't want to go too sideways, but it's very important for me to point this out this morning. Say, Philip, that's awesome, cool, great. Theoretical, metaphorical connection of Jesus in the Old Testament. Wow, that's great. Is there is there like a practical spot I can hang my hat on? Yes, absolutely. Friends, it's stuff like this is why earthly Christian marriage matters. Because Christian marriage, a marriage between two people claiming the name of Christ is to reflect the splendor of the husband bride picture of Christ And his church, those of you who are married, your marriage should show forth this notion of causing the name of the Lord to be remembered in all generations and people giving thanks to God forever and ever. That's what your marriage is supposed to do. Flip, if you will, with me as we close. Ephesians chapter five, just real quick. Say, Philip, you're making that up. No, I'm just paraphrasing the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. You know, we always start in verse 22. I don't want to do that. 
Let's go to verse 18. Let's make this more uncomfortable than it was already going to be. He says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. But instead be filled with the spirit. And how should people in the church treat each other and engage with each other and interact with each other? Speaking to one another, this is for the whole church, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. There should be an attitude and an atmosphere of praise of God when God's people come together for any reason. Even if the Lord is not specifically spoken of. There should be a spirit and atmosphere of love and praise and joy that flows from God's people being with each other. Whether it's in a room like this or it's across the dinner table or it's out playing basketball or it's out doing the service project together. Whatever it might be, there should be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I'm not saying your whole life should turn into a musical. That would be weird and it'd be a train wreck and I would have to not participate in that because I just can't carry a tune to save my life. And so I don't want to be that guy. You don't want me to be that guy, I promise. And so we're not going to turn this into a Disney movie where every time everybody, somebody meets each other, they start singing to each other. We're not going to do that. But there should be this atmosphere of praise that exists and just naturally manifests itself when God's people come together. That should, that should be real. And then notice what it says. It says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then notice what it says here in verse 21. And be subject, be in submission to one another in the fear of Christ. The whole church should be in submission to the whole church. You say, Philip, why did you back that up? Because in the generation that we live in, if you just start with verse 22, where you say wives be subject or be in submission to your husbands, people just kind of lose their mind because submission and subjectivity, these are negative terms and you're belittling a person and you're making women less than men. And the chihuahua starts coming out and everybody wants to get on a talk show and talk about all the patriarchy and all this horrible, bad stuff and all. Yeah, sorry. You don't understand what submission is if you feel that way. This is from the context of the Christian religion and the Christian community. And it flows from Jesus Christ himself, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the one who's been given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when he came in his first incarnation, he subjected himself to the first person of the Trinity's will, the Father, to do his will, not his own will. If Jesus can be subject and not be belittled, you can be subject and not be belittled. This has nothing to do with being a man or being a woman. It has everything to do with the attitude of the heart and understanding what real, true, biblical submission and subjection is, which is not just for women, but the verse right before this one says the whole church should be that way to each other. So let's just kind of get all the nonsense out of the way so we can have a real conversation about the blessing of this marriage and all the world from Psalm 45. What does it say? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, the way that Christ is the head of the church. 
He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, there we are. All of us are subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. What did Jesus do? He stepped down out of glory as the second person of the Trinity. He veiled himself in human flesh. He was born as a helpless babe in a manger. He had to grow in wisdom and stature, setting aside his divine privilege of omniscience for a short season. He subjected himself to human authority. He, he subjected himself to human death. And he died a death he did not deserve to save wretched sinners who did not deserve to be saved. Husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Ladies, that whole subjection thing doesn't sound that bad all of a sudden. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water of the word. That he might present, listen to this language, tell me this doesn't sound just like Psalm 45. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. She was clothed with gold. When she left that other house and came to his house and abandoned those people and became his people, she was clothed with gold. She was sanctified. There was no spot There was no wrinkle. The king was enamored with her beauty. It talks about in Psalm 45. But she was holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does also the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will be one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. And each wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Friends, earthly Christian marriage matters. Because earthly Christian marriage is supposed to reflect the greater reality of Christ as husband and church as bride. It is supposed to scream out to the world the glory of the gospel that transforms everything. You say my marriage doesn't do that. Okay. Okay. You have no idea if you lived with. uh, First off, I don't live with so and so. So I'm not even going to go there. I just not. But you do. But you don't know how hard I don't need to know how hard. You are in Christ. They are in Christ, hopefully, if you're both Christians. Christian marriage. They're both in Christ. You both claim Jesus. You are supposed to reflect the glory and the splendor of the glory king and the glory queen that changes the entire face of the earth. That's what you're supposed to reflect. So how do I do that? By being in subjection, submission to one another. That's why I backed it up a few verses. You submit yourself to Jesus. 
And then you sacrifice your rights and your privileges and your stuff to the benefit of the other. That's what it means to be biblically in subjection, submission to somebody else. What is most beneficial for them? That's the person I will be. But what about my, I want to get mine. I, I want them to, to do this and I want them to do that. And I want them to love me this way and I want them to act this way toward me. And I want them to respect me like this and they need to treat me like that. And there's not a verse in the whole Bible that says that. Not one. There's no, second hesitations doesn't even say that. You can't go to the Apocrypha and find that. It's not in the book of Maccabees or Jubilee or any of the other places. It's not there. Well, hey, somewhere along the line, I got to get all the stuff that I've been wanting to get. And I got to get my needs met. And I got to do it. It doesn't say no. Sacrifice yourself. Be in subjection to the glory and the will of Christ and be in submission to one another, living a life that is pleasing and praiseworthy to the glory of God and love your spouse that way. But what if they there's no but what if they love your spouse that way? But Philip, what if they don't ever respond back to me in that way? Then you get a crown of glory one day in the future. You lay up for yourself treasure in heaven because you suffered for righteousness sake. Say, Philip, that's not really encouraging. I hate your method of counseling. Imagine what it would be like behind closed doors when I'm not in public. And I'm really telling you how I feel about it. Some of the, all, the loudest laughs are from elders who've been in that room with me when I've done that. The Christian marriage is supposed to reflect the glory of Jesus and his church. Are you going to have shortcomings? Yes. Are you going to fail some? Sure. Are you going to have things you need to repent of? Yeah. Are you going to have hurts along the way that you're going to have to work through? Absolutely. We aren't Jesus and we aren't the purified church yet. We aren't the glorified church yet. So there's still struggles that are going to happen. There's still things that are going to take place. There's stuff that you're going to have to work through. There's things that other people are going to have to walk with you through. But at the end of the day... You have to make the conscious decision that your part of that reality is going to be to reflect the glory of Jesus and his church in your marriage. So that when people see it, they don't see necessarily perfection, but they see people who are striving to make much of the gospel and how they love each other. That's the bottom line. You say, Philip, why did you jump from this metaphorical picture of the king and his bride to this thing? Because, friends, right here at the end of the deal, let's flip back. Flip back real quick. Right here at the end of the deal, Psalm 45. Right here. Verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever. When the... When the when the king and the queen come together in this bond of marriage, it changes the whole world. And you know what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5? When a man who's in Christ marries a woman who is in Christ and they come together, they are but a small reflection of the king and the queen who have come together. 
whose image is supposed to change the world. That's how you need to approach your marriage. If you're married in this room and you both claim to be Christians, that's how you need to approach your marriage. Because your marriage isn't about you. It isn't about your feelings. It isn't about your felt needs. All of those things are important. I'm not saying they're not important. But the greatest, most important thing about your marriage, if you're both in Christ, is does this reflect the glory of Jesus and his church? That's what it's supposed to be about. This glorious love song for the king and the queen whose marriage changes the whole earth. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the psalm, its beauty, its power, its passion. Thank you for the glorious King, King Jesus. Thank you for the glorious queen that he is making us to be, his bride, his church. And thank you for the fact that that union changes the earth. It's life changing all over the world. And God, thank you that you've provided us the blessing that those of us who are married and in Christian marriages now have the distinct privilege of participating and reflecting that glory on some level to those around us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table together. If you were not able to get uh, the elements that you need, there's some at the back and up here at the front. I'll give everybody just a minute to settle in with that and then we will begin that time together.